Welcome to One Square Mile in Northeast Fife, a podcast from the University of St Andrews. I'm Ruth Sanderson, and in each episode, I'll be chatting to one of our academics about their life and the real world impact their research has on all of our lives. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Peter McKay from the School of English. I work in literature, the literature of these islands, especially Scotland, Ireland um, and England and the relationships between them over the last couple of hundred years, but especially the ways that different languages interplay, um, so Scottish Gaelic, Irish Gaelic. And then you get this really interesting um mixed up tartany pattern of what you thought was a simple story of, well, you have these canonical figures, Shakespeare, Dickens, up to the present day, nothing in between. And then you realise lots of different things were happening in the 20th, 19th, 18th centuries in different languages, different songs, different ways of looking at the world. And you just get a much more complicated way of looking at books. So what can we tell about the world and about history and about what was happening from looking at the various language literatures that we have throughout the UK and Ireland as opposed to, like you said, the canonical figures that we're so used to to looking at? I think one of the easiest ways for me to look at it is, is, because I'm from the northwest of Scotland, is the Highlands and what happens in the Highlands. And you have this narrative in the 19th century of um, balmorality. You have short shortbread tin images of people up on hillsides. It's all barren, it's all empty. Very Walter Scott. Very Walter Scott, quite twee, but it's okay, everything is is, is polite. Um, there is this peace in the world, despite the fact that you have had a civil war 100 years previously and one culture was heavily damaged. If you then look at the the Gaelic poetry of the period, you get an entirely different narrative. You get stories of um, trying to make sense of cultural collapse, trying to make sense of clearances, emigration, and the fact that their language and their culture just is eroding before Mm. their eyes. And it's interesting, you know, talking about that side of things, because you, I guess, across all languages, you get kind of, I'm trying to think of the right word, kind of an underdog language of peoples who have maybe been subjugated or have been, like you were saying, with the clearances or in Ireland who have been under rule. Um, So how much of that comes out in it? Well, one of the questions in my area is, is is Scotland a colonial country? Is it a colonised country? Is, say, Scottish Gaelic or Irish a minoritised language? What are the power relationships between the different languages and cultures in these islands? And I'm leaving those questions open. I'm not going to answer them here. But one of the interesting things is you need to find different models or different patterns for looking at the relationship between language and culture. One of them could be to say, okay, this is entirely a a relationship of colonial power, whether it's political or cultural. Is there ideas of mimicry? Do you have Irish or Scottish Gaelic writers imitating um, writers in English? Do you have a sense where authentic or pure culture has been um, weakened or attenuated by this encounter with other cultures? Or do you have a strength that comes from this, from realising, okay, Scottish Gaelic is almost entirely surrounded by English. You have to reassert for various traditional forms of Gaelic, perhaps, to tr- try and keep that language alive. But what does this then mean? 
Um, does it mean that everything that you say in the language becomes political? Does it mean that everything that you say um, is not individual, but a communal voice? There are really interesting questions. If if I was to switch to Gaelic just now, would that have a political statement just in this conversation? I think that that's fascinating, the idea of what do you um, gleam from from the purpose of language, really, and, and the purpose of writing in a particular language. Does it always have to have a subtext? I think it will always have multiple subtexts the minute that you have a polylingual um, situation or a multilingual society. If you're in an absolutely monolingual um, country, then you're simply speaking your language. But I don't know of any throughout history, any countries that were simply monolingual in that way, because there was always trade. There was always encounter with other countries. There might have been a lingua franca, whether it's Latin or French. And so you've always got the possibility of switching between tongues, switching between registers. And that choice is freighted. That choice carries meaning with it. Um, and it's got different choices from within the language or out with and so even using the word out with signals, OK, we are in Scotland now, that's fine, we can do this. Um, but William Wordsworth has his very famous poem, The Solitary Reaper, where he listens to um, a woman singing on a highland hill. And he's no idea what she's saying because she's singing in Gaelic. And he imagines the possibilities. He could just have asked. He could have asked somebody, what are you singing? But no, it's from out, from without that culture you can then impose possible meanings on it from within the culture you get an entirely different picture I mean you're from within that culture you're, you're a Gaelic speaker yourself and do you think that uh, there are different interpretations even today depending on whether you're from out with or within I think it's not just whether you're from out with or within I think the there's an effect whereby you quite often start looking at your own culture through other lenses, through other people's eyes in a way. And so one of the interesting things that, or one of the things I find most interesting to work on in the last um, five, six years was a book I worked on with a colleague, Ian S. McPherson, which was trying to look at Gaelic love and transgressive verse. Um, so there was a lot of bawdry, there was a lot of erotic verse, there was a lot of courtly love verse from the medieval period that was very explicit. But this was a version of our own culture that um, it was hard for us to excavate. Some areas of the Hands and Hands of Scotland had kept these stories, kept these songs more than others. In the 19th century, many of the texts were expurgated or changed or made more polite Mm -hmm. um, because of the religious revival. More Victorian because of the religious revival then at the time. And so in some ways, you will um, take on board these other versions of your own culture. And then you have to go and say, well, was this always the case? Was there something different going on? Maybe not something more authentic, just something odder. What effect then did religion have on um, the writing from from these isles, especially Scotland and Ireland? Because, well, I should say the north of Ireland, because you had a similar kind of well, I guess, Protestant religious revival in Northern Ireland and f- from where you are in, in North East Scotland in the islands. And and so did that hamper the, the, the writing or did that change it or, or how did that work? It's a really complicated picture because on the one hand you have the church and the various churches in Scotland um, perhaps being the main drivers of the written form of the language for centuries um, and actually sustaining a literature in in print. 
But the other hand, their version of what the culture was could be quite different. So the very first um, book published in Gaelic was a version of the New Testament by Robert Knox. And he explicitly says, well, I want to publish this so that you stop sharing these tales about the Fenians and tell different types of story. And so it's the, the relationship between print and oral culture is always going to be a fraught one. But it's also going to be termed about forms of control, forms of narrative, forms of um, identifying what you want the culture to be. When did ordinary writers, quote unquote, um, in Scotland and Ireland start start writing down what would have been probably oral tradition? I'll talk about the Scottish um, situation because that's what I've been working on about more. So the first secular books in, in Scotland and Scottish Gaelic were published in the 1800s. Um, 1741 was a vocabulary by Alistair McVeigh and Alistair, um, Alexander MacDonald, and then his own book of poems in 1751. And he was a great figure. He was a captain in Bonnie Prince Charlie's army. He switched religions as many times as he could. Very pragmatic. Very pragmatic. Over the top. His poetry is perhaps the best. He's my favourite Gaelic poet. But it's the rudest, the nastiest. Um, if he didn't like you, in his poems, really bad things would be happening to your body parts. And you have this secular version then coming out of a moment which is of cultural crisis. You've just had the 1745-1746 campaign. You've just had... Um, government <laughs> a government attempt to to destroy your culture in effect to ban tartan to minimize the use of gaelic to ban the carrying of arms and then you start publishing books almost as this um restorative act or a desperate act of preservation and from this then you get the oceanic phenomenon of um the 1760s where you have these translations of what james mcpherson claimed was a third century poet Ocean, which were taken from the oral tradition, or many of them were. But they came with quite a tale attached to them, and they were not real. <laughs> they were not real. They, they, they were largely based on things from the oral tradition with an awful lot of amendation and an awful lot of James McPherson's own imagination in there and a really weird translation style, which makes it really difficult for us to read nowadays. You... It's quite difficult to put yourself in the 18th century mindset to see why Napoleon was carrying these on the battlefield, why these were this fantastic phenomenon. But they were. And so I think this is partly looking at the formation of the United Kingdom as it is today and how part of that for foundation of that was on weird versions of myths that are half translation, half translated, half mangled. But that... Does that not come from a very strong tradition of um, Norse myth and legends where they were doing something incredibly similar um, in Scandinavia and building their own own national legend through through that sort of mythology? How much influence do you think that had on what was happening in Scotland? I think what you have in the 18th and 19th century nation buildings is almost a, a mythological arms race where, where, where you need to find these different foundation myths, where you need to try and find um, an ancient side to your culture. In Scotland, say, you, they were the, we were in the middle of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, Scotland was pitching itself as the Athens of the North. You need to have something to compete with Homer with the Iliad, with the Odyssey. And partly one way to do it was to claim Irish stories entirely as Scottish ones, to rewrite the the history of these islands to say, well, all of the culture came from Scotland originally and in Ireland is obviously later versions of it, which 
Of course it's not the case. We know the truth. You know the truth. I know the truth, Peter. I know the truth. I know we were there first. So it's interesting that all this happened around the time when Britain was really at, at its strongest. You know, you had a new union with Scotland. The whole of Ireland was still part of Britain um, and you had you know, the British Empire writ large across the world. So then out of that springs this very earnest attempt to have uh, a need to have a foundation and a, a story of, of, of nation's own. And I guess that happened all over Europe around the same time as well. It, it absolutely happened all over Europe at the same time. And one of the things I'm interested in is what happens about 100 years later. Um, and when you have different countries around Europe trying to form themselves in effect, trying to either become independent or looking ahead to a post-imperial age. And one of the things I do with my classes, um, students here, is I teach a module called Celtic Modernism. It's looking at whether you can be Celtic and modern at the same time, what, what the oddity of that is, and simply asking them the question, okay, how, how old is this country? And then you have to question, okay, what do you mean by this country? And if you go back to the current incarnation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, it's 100 years old, no more. It's very young in in European terms. And what you explore then is how through the literature, how through the stories that are being told, you either have a new country coming into being or you have this glossing over of history to try and legitimise the present day. So can you be... Celtic and modern? I'm not sure any of us are modern or any of us are fully modern. I think that the idea of modernity itself is something that it's one of these great stories we've told ourselves that something changed in 1911 um, and through Fordian production lines and the introduction of media, everything was different. But I think we always had this continuity from before that as well. One of the good arguments is that all of the the blast, the continuum of of existence that was exploded by modernism in Ireland, you could put that in the 1840s. And so the Irish were modern before the the British were. Where did the love of the language of, of the isles, of these British islands come from? Um, so I, I'm bilingual and from my earliest age I had spoke two languages, I had two names, Peter and Pather, which I could choose between. And just because of that you start asking questions about historically why is this the case with the situation. And I did a PhD in Trinity College Dublin, partly because I had this naive idea that I'd be going to a Celtic <laughs> metropolis that there would be something that you don't find in Scotland because for various historic reasons Scottish Gaelic is spoken by a small part of the population I was thinking I will go to Ireland and I will see what it, what it's like to have a similar culture um, writ large and everybody will be speaking everybody Irish in the shop I, I knew everybody <laughs> in Dublin wouldn't be speaking but you might get to go to Connemara and everybody you go to speaking. the Gale Talk you go to Gaul you go to the Gale Talk and so it was partly um, out of sentimentality out of this mythic version of of um, wanting to see my culture in a metropolitan an urban way it's almost like it was a version almost of Black Panther for me the, the movie where you have this sci-fi version of of your own um, upbringing. That's what took me to Ireland. And then it was in some ways much more interesting to see the actual negotiations of multiple identities, multiple languages, how people are comfortable or uncomfortable shifting between them. 
like many people who, um, who do a PhD and work in academia, I had quite a few short-term contracts. I, um, I did a postdoc in Shamsini Centre. I taught at UCD. I taught at Trinity. I taught at Edinburgh. But then I got a job at the um, BBC as a broadcast journalist and then news producer. In Glasgow, I'm working on largely on a TV programme called Inva, and it was my main responsibility to be doing the international news, the big stories in Gaelic. So I'd be, especially when I started, it was about the time of the fall of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. So I was doing all of these stories with intricate maps of Libya and then translating that culture into Gaelic, finding people who could speak about it um, and telling those stories. Did you enjoy it? It was fascinating. It's tiring work. It's emotionally exhausting work, especially dealing with international news all the time, because there are very few happy international stories. The other part of my job was as a video journalist. Um, you'd go out with a camera, recording equipment, and over the course of a day, you'd write, film, edit, and have on air um, a three-minute story to an incredibly tight deadline. How did that suit your academic mindset? Um, it certainly helped my academic mindset <laughs> when I went back to academia, where you've got a deadline of, say, two years. Having been working to a five-hour deadline, it makes things seem a little bit easier. But you came back to academia, didn't you? I came back to academia, and I still do work for the BBC um, because I was always wanting to merge both, if at all possible, because I like I like researching. I like writing, I write poetry, I write um, non-fiction as well as academic books. But I like doing these for different audiences as much as possible. It's almost the best of both worlds to be able to be doing the teaching, the researching, and then to be doing the media when I want to. You grew up on the Isle of Lewis. Um, what was that like for you? This is one of the, the difficulties. I would say it was great. Um, I have nothing to compare it with. And so for me, I, I almost can't imagine growing up in a city. Because when I leave my mother's house, if I walk for two minutes, uh, well, about five minutes, you can't see any other houses. The only traces of humanity you can see are the the trails of planes across the sky and then these peat roads and peat cuttings that have gone back for 300, 400 years. In one of the lochs just nearby, they've just discovered um, shards of pottery that are 5,000 years old. And looking back on it now, this was such a privilege to grow up beside a stone circle, to be able just to stroll down to the to 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 the beach, to the stony beach every day if you wanted to, to have this space. And what I miss more than anything else, and Lewis is a very flat island, very little, very few trees. It's just the amount of sky, and you would go outside and you would have this full hemisphere of stars at night. Do you think that growing up within that history, growing up within, I guess, the ghosts of history, is something that you've tried to find in, in the work that you do? My great-granduncle was a poet. Um, two of my teachers at school were published authors. Um, when I was in primary school, we were sent around with recording devices to the old people in the village. And I think one... I'm incredibly privileged to have come from a place which has this tradition of storytelling, but also this tradition of trying to access the past, trying to record the past. And so everything that I've done, <laughs> perhaps in my adult life, comes from these experiences of being, being shown that it was possible. You, you can go away and create new stories, but it's also as important to go and find out what people thought was happening, to go and ask people, OK, what was your experience of the war like? What memories do you have of the Isle Air disaster in 1919? And these kinds of things. And 
the care that comes with this and the need to be accurate because these are the stories and the fabric that go to build up a community. That's on the one hand, but you also have to have the playfulness to rewrite them. Mm-hmm. And so getting that balance and the ethical balance of that is something that really interests me in my work. With that history, where are we now? I mean, what's the state of it now? Because it's very tempting, I think, to look at language literature as something historic, where actually these are living languages. In terms of media and broadcasting, we're in a remarkable situation, both in Ireland and Scotland. So TG Cahar, um, the Irish language TV station in the Republic of Ireland, it's one of the best TV stations I've seen and, and because they take risks. Mm-hmm. They, they have this global worldview while also being incredibly local at the same time. And in Scotland, BBC Halibut does something similar and that's existed since 2008. So you have your own, the stories from very local parts of the country being told alongside large international tales. That's so important. But then in Ireland, the distinction, I guess, is that Irish is much more normalised in the everyday. Um, You know, it's the national language of Ireland, even if everybody just uses English. Everybody learns it in school. Um, You know, loads and oodles of kids go to the Gale Talk. Irish is a very common thing, even in the north of Ireland. Uh, it's it's common in a certain sector of schools that, that everybody learns Irish. And there's been a, a real revival in the Irish language over the past, you know, 50, 100 years. But do you think in Scotland it's still a bit more marginal? It's certainly a lot more marginal, certainly in terms of numbers. And so um, I think... In the island of Ireland, you're talking about the number of speakers is somewhere between 30,000 and 2.5 million. It's almost impossible to say, just because of how, depending on how you would use those metrics. In Scotland, it's between sixty and 80,000. And that's having any competence in the language at all. But there might be a similar number that use it on an everyday basis. And so it's, again, how you regard a living culture, a living community or not. It is a bit harder when you've got those numbers to make the case, especially because there's a lot of antagonism towards Scottish Gaelic and in the media in Scotland in a way that there simply isn't in the Republic of Ireland. The question that I avoided answering um, earlier was about literature as well and the literature in the, in the languages. In it's quite a different situation in both cases because in Ireland, as in Wales, you've got an Irish language literature or a Welsh language literature that can exist by itself, more or less. And it was very common in Scotland through the 20th century to start to have onfast translations. So Gaelic and English would exist alongside each other, partly because of the need to integrate Scottish Gaelic into Scottish cultural life. There weren't that many speakers. Um In the last 20 years or so, there's been a shift away from that. There's been an awful lot of novels written purely in Gaelic with a couple of schemes that started in the the early noughties. And you've now got this very vibrant prose scene as well as a poetry scene. Many of the writers are learners of the language um, who either learnt in adulthood or, 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 or late childhood. And this has given a huge energy to the literature as well. And I don't think that's quite the same case in Ireland, where there's still perhaps more of a reification of native speakers. So with that, what does Scots language, Ulster Scots, Irish, Gaelic, Welsh, what does that tell us about the state of the world in in Britain today? It doesn't tell us one thing. It tells us many, many different things. Because I think one of the, the crucial things is each of the languages has slightly different ways of shaping and framing the world. Um, if we want to take the climate crisis and how we deal with the environment are, are on all of our minds, there are different ways of shaping 
the idea of wildness in the different languages. In Scottish Gaelic, you don't have a word for wild. Everything is related to humanity. So you've got this close connection between human existence, human work, and all of nature. And there's something similar in in Irish. And Scots is a little bit different again. Well, I was going to say, especially in, in Ulster Scots, you've got a lot about farming and cultivation and actually the taming of wildness. It's it's all about the taming of wildness. And you have the sense of there are different types of land and the, the, the townland is all important. Outside the townland, things go wrong. And just the idea of then you'd have to translate the idea of a townland which, if you were speaking to somebody in England, because it's an entirely different way of structuring. We the should world. explain what a townland is. Listen, you're you're the expert. No, 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 no. I, I, you grew up in a townland. Well, so, so. I, I grew up in a townland called Ballydown, which abutted Listenery, or as we would say, was financed Listenery. Um, a townland is a, a space. It's not a village. It's not a hamlet. It's not a town. But it's a space, an area of land that encompasses usually farmland, usually a bit of river, usually a bit of woodland, but it's very small. It's a, a little pocket of land where people people claim that as their their location, you know, as their history. And we talk about being from, instead of being from the town beside it, you would be from this townland and you know, your family would probably have been there for 300 years as well. And just the way you have of talking about that is it's ballet down Fernent, Listenerie. So you've got the the village of the fort in Irish and then Fernent, the Scots word, abutting a Listenerie, the meadow of the king, I'm guessing that's going to be. And it's just these different languages overlapping each other while speaking in nominal English. And one of the other ways of looking at it, certainly in the, these hands, they're islands. We've got these maritime cultures and we've got these this great depth of knowledge of different parts of the coast, different parts of the sea, different types of vocabulary that go with it, um, different ways of predicting the weather. And predicting the weather used to be a huge part of, of Gaelic culture. But within this, you can start to almost track how the land, how the environment has changed around that as well, where the language doesn't quite fit anymore. An example could be, well, one of the many moth areas, moth being a, a raised beach. And the minute where you have a raised beach, but the sea has moved on, or there has been erosion there, you can have these dotted around um, higher up than they should be. And you've got the sense, OK, the landscape is changing before your cultural linguistic eyes. What does the language and the literature that's being produced now tell us about the politics that are happening now? Within Scotland, it's hard to um, talk about politics without having the constitutional question coming in here. And one of the interesting things for any of the minority languages is that they can often be seen to signify or symbolise just one thing. So certainly in um, Ireland, there's this tendency to identify a language with a religion, say, or a language then with a position on a constitutional question. In Scotland, that has also been the case where Gaelic is now seen to be being used as a tool by the SNP. This is not the case and has never been the case. And Gaelic speakers are have as, as broad a spectrum of political opinions, foibles and ignorances. Scots has been used in exactly the same way or has been 
claim to be being used in this way. But it's a it's a vibrant language community with as many different perspectives in it as possible. So I think the most interesting things that are happening within these languages are raising these questions. They are going, well, just because I am speaking in this language, it does not have this clear political meaning. Let's be a bit more nuanced than that. Is there a similarity or is there a, an equivalence in England of language literature? No, and this is one of the, the things that annoys me the most about the tendencies within British literature is that um, throughout different parts of, of history, you will have dialect literature, you will have regional literature come to the fore, becoming hugely popular or then um, being ridiculed. So even a, a, a novel like Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, you do have one character who is speaking in dialect all the way through it and the rest is this um, evened out um, more proper or precise or received English. And then looking at the relationship between those forms of abutting languages, and especially because, and this was perhaps interesting because in, in Scotland we tend to associate Scots speakers with earthiness, couthness, a bit raw but a bit more honest. In Wuthering Heights, this is the least attractive character who is a religious bigot. And then you've got questions of class come in there as well, and whether you have... Um, whether you are looking down upon or whether you are celebrating dialect or whether you are just accepting that it can be used for any purposes. Tell me about the research that you're doing at the minute. What's the next book? The book I'm going to be working on next is... uh, collection of literary non-fiction essays in Gaelic and it's largely about the kinds of things we've been talking about um, today what it means to have grown up on on a Scottish island where you have a minority language literature uh, where you have this deep culture but you've also been involved in media for much of your life and so it's the 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 the, just to give an example, the first essay I'm starting on is with a group of sisters in my village who were phenomenal singers and they had pop videos made of them in the 1960s more or less, except it was pop videos for a particular type or, or, or audience. They were driven round the island, uh, the, the village on a trailer on the back of a tractor while singing, while dressed in wool, because this was the idea of the islands that, that would sell well. And I'm just interested in what this does to a culture when you're when you're thinking about yourself in terms of um, portrayal on screen as well as lived existence. What impact do you think that language literature has on our lives, on our everyday lives? I think you could easily um, go through your life living in this in this country, speaking only English, not having any awareness um, of anything else that happens. But the minute that you do that, you would in Scotland have to ignore all of the work of Burns. You'd have to ignore all of the work of Walter Scott and his huge use of Scots. You wouldn't be able to make sense of much of the history, the geography and the place names of of Scotland as well. The arguments about road signs, and I'm not going to get into the arguments (laughs) about road signs, but it's a way of reading the landscape and it's a way of reading the history of this country as well. And having awareness of the literature as well as how this is marked visually around us gives you these and greater sympathy, greater nuance, greater awareness of what has happened here in the past, what might happen in the future. Mm. Are there similar themes that run across the, ver- the different literatures of language 
within the UK and Ireland. If I'm going to be taking the optimistic version, it's that there's always going to be a theme of resistance, perhaps a theme of um, radical opposition to X. And this is when we're in the the view of these islands as a, being in a post-colonial state, more or less, where you have a dominant world language that is constantly... Um, threatened in your very existence you have to take that seriously you do always have to think that that you are pressing back against something the difficult thing then is not having English language culture determining everything you do in your own culture and so finding different ways of making bridges with other languages translating from and one of the things I'm working on at the moment is translating from Macedonian and Occitan and Slovakian with bridge translations but trying to make these different connections with other cultures rather than the one that surrounds and threatens to swallow. I think one of the fascinating things, and it should have been obvious to me, but speaking to the North Macedonians, um, they are obsessed with peripheral or in-between existence, not having full status. And so there's all of these wonderful images or trying to find these these symbols in their poems for things that express this. Well, nobody recognises us. Nobody, uh, no, nobody says we have a right to exist. And so one of the poems I translated was a great poem in the voice of Pluto, which is going in and out of scientific recognition as a planet. And this was the, the North Macedonian way of going, well, are we a country or not? What can we call ourselves? And then you imagine yourself as Pluto as a way of doing this. It's a fantastic gallery and it should have been... I did, just didn't think. But yes, this will determine everything that you, you write in that language or it threatens to determine everything you write in the language. Do I exist? Can I say that I exist? In what terms and what name can I give myself? And how long will I exist for? And how long will I exist for? Are you hopeful about Gaelic as a language existing, you know, henceforth for time immemorial or...? Um, do you worry about it? Well, you, you have to worry about it. And one of the, the questions that I've been thinking through with myself and other people is, at what age did I first discover Gaelic as a dying language? What does that do to you if you discover when you're eight years old or ten years old that there is a responsibility for you to speak that, that this is weighing on your shoulders? Um, I don't have any answer to that. I'm just trying to see where I go over the next few months and years. I'm optimistic that it will be spoken certainly for the rest of my lifetime, probably for the next hundred years or so. It will change. And this has always been one of the, the fears that Gaelic speakers have, that um, it will change in ways that make it less recognisable or less rooted or less rich or less uh, less, full, less full of language. And so there is an old slogan um, Gaelic Gaelic and better Gaelic broken than Gaelic in the coffin. I don't think it has to be broken. I think it'll just change. But the the demise of Gaelic has been spoken about perhaps for two thousand years, and so it's always on the verge of going out of existence. But that's fine. It means you can just have a a great party with it as it goes. You you. You use it as much as you can in the meantime. You'll have a lovely wake. Have a lovely wake. Have a lovely wake for it. Um, it's interesting talking there about, about language evolving and changing and about how um, to survive, Gaelic will have to change in some respect. Is that one of the problems with peripheral languages, whether it's here or whether it's elsewhere, that they often don't change because they are seen as the traditional historic language? I mean, very much from my own culture, Ulster Scots, 
is a, a strange time capsule of language. It's an Elizabethan form of Scotch, which hasn't really ever changed. But what about Gaelic? What about Irish? What about Welsh? I, I think it takes a huge amount of effort, say, to, to maintain forms of Ulster Scots through a community. It t- takes a huge amount of rootedness um, and for families and communities to stay in one place for, for centuries to do that. Um, I think that becomes an awful lot more difficult when there's so much more movement. And I think... What, when we move out of townlands? When we move out of townlands. <laughs> Heaven profess. Or, or, or when townlands can be bought over. Or when there's questions about land ownership or whether it is possible for for young people to afford to stay on the islands of Scotland or these kinds of things. And there's a lot of discussion at the moment of the risk to culture that comes from second homes, holiday homes. And this is all across the, the western seaboard and huge amounts of rural poverty as well. Um, but the, the other side of this is I love museums. I love archives. I'm not sure I'd like to live in one. And so the difficulty is maintaining that balance of having the freedom to change things, having the freedom to to um, bring new life, new ideas, new new ways of looking at the world into a language, into a culture and commu- community, while still being respectful. What role, because we talk a lot at the minute about how to decolonialise culture, how to decolonialise our history, or at least tell that story with history, what role does language have in that? Some of the most interesting work that has been done recently in terms of Gaelic history especially is the relationship between Gaelic speakers and empire and colonialism in North America. Um, So patterns of slave ownership and the relationship between that and land ownership in the Highlands. And so you will have somebody who is a minister in the Western Islands of Scotland who owns um, five or six slaves in a plantation. And then you've got the relationship then between Gaelic speakers who go overseas, who have a second family in Canada. There's still an awful lot of work to be done there, but this has been part of the culture and part of the way of shaping and looking at the world for hundreds of years. It doesn't leave that many traces in the literature, or it leaves traces in ways that, from our perspectives, are perhaps undesirable. There's an awful lot of imperial bombast um, in Gaelic literature especially, less so in Irish literature because there wasn't the same levels of engagement in the British Army. But there is a colonial past that has to be in, taken account of um, as the colonial oppressor mm. rather than as the, the perennial victim. When we talk about research and the impact of research, I think we've got a tendency to think about uh, the sciences because I guess the the impact of research is a tangible thing. It's uh, creating a vaccine. It's building a robot. It's uh, you know uh, discovering a, a solar system somewhere. But what about literature and language? Studying literature and language is is crucial because what we do is narrative. What we do is storytelling, and it's the the analysis of how we tell stories. And honestly, everything around us is is a story. Everything, whether it is marketing, whether it is the idea of the solar system, is a story that is told in particular ways. And probably if I was pushed the way that I work is as a cultural historiographer, which is looking at how the stories we have told ourselves have changed over times. And this is important because then you can see it happening before your very eyes. It gives you the tools to look at um, political speeches, discourse, advertising, film, 
um, TV to see, okay, we're now presenting the environment through different images, different symbols than we were 10 years ago. Smoking has a different set of images that go along with it. Why has this changed? And how comfortable are we with the changes? Are these changes for the better or who is using stories on us and why are they doing this? So it's about using language as sort of a historical tool for analysis. As as a barometer, as a, a way of measuring how culture is changing and being shaped before our very eyes, but also then the forces that underlie that culture, whether it would be um, colonialism, capitalism, different political ideologies, where they have come from and how they're informing the types of tale that are allowed, the types of tale that are popular. Thank you to Dr Peter McKay for sharing his insights and explaining some of the work he's doing here at the University of St Andrews. And thanks to you too for listening. Look out for our next episode when we'll be talking to Professor Rebecca Goss from the School of Chemistry. You can find all our episodes through your favourite podcast hosting service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do like, share and review. And never miss an episode by clicking subscribe to One Square Mile.